Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name's Nick. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Hershey Free, and we are so excited that you guys are joining us this morning. Um, if you are new, you haven't been here in a while, we are in a series that we're calling Follow. It is a series that we are walking through in the Gospel of Mark. It's been really exciting. Um, hopefully for you, as you've been looking through it, you, you've gotten into the Word of God more, that you've started to see what God's doing. And it's really cool because as a staff team, we get to hear stories about what people are seeing God do by, by following along and getting into his word. And, and I get to share one of those stories this morning. I am, I'm really excited about this because it relates to student ministries, which I get to be a part of and I think is the coolest thing in the world. Um, but what happened is way back in the beginning of the series in Mark 1, all right, Mark chapter 1, it was talking about how Jesus came to start his mission and he got baptized. And we were teaching in this in student ministry world, and, and all of a sudden we started to get a lot of questions. We started having the students ask, like, what is baptism? Why do we do it? Why did Jesus do it? What's this mean for us? Is it salvation? Is it not salvation? And we sat there, and we, we gathered together as the student ministries came. We're like, man, like, there's a lot of cool response from this. We need to talk to people about this. We need to talk to our students. And so what we did is we, we created a, a real nifty postcard um, and publisher, you know, it, we didn't say we were graphically inclined. It was just kind of like, it was whatever. And we just said, hey, if you are interested, check here in, for baptism. If you have questions about baptism, check here. And we handed these out to our students. And the results came in. We're like, oh, wow, like we need to actually have a class on baptism. And so a few weeks ago, we actually took all of core ministries. And we gathered in the auditorium, which was a little overwhelming because um, we almost did not fit, but we brought the students in, and we had the entire ministry there, and we taught on baptism. And the results were absolutely amazing. And here's the crazy thing. This is where it gets cool. This is where you start going, this is a God thing, all right? This is where it's cool, all right? So we said, all right, if you want to go forward in baptism, please check off on this card. Again, we, you know, we did the card thing. It's what we do. And we're like, if you are going to go forward, let's do it. So here's, check this out, church. This is so cool. On Palm Sunday, April 14th, in not one, but in two services, at the 9 and 1030, because we don't have room, we are baptizing 29 students as they step out in faith. How cool is it to see God moving? And like, here's the crazy thing. It's not anything that we did. It's students going, no, I get it. I get it, it's about stepping out in faith and showing people what it means to follow Jesus. And so here's the thing, we're celebrating at 9 and 1030, we have to break it up because we don't have enough. There's not even going to be a sermon that day. So some of you are like, yeah, right? But here's the crazy, yeah, those of you who like uh, nodded, yeah, I saw all of you, okay? Now here's the thing, we want to pack this place out. We want you to invite family, invite friends, because this is a celebration. Because then this is the lead into Easter where we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, which baptism symbolizes. How cool is it to see God working? This is the crazy thing that when we, when we look at what God's word is saying, it moves us to action. When we look at what God's word is saying, it changes lives. And it is so awesome. I cannot wait for you, church, to hear about what God did as we share some of these testimonies with you. As you hear about the life change in students' lives, as you hear about them following Jesus, it is going to be so cool, and I cannot wait for you to be here on Palm Sunday with us. As we're looking at this series, it is so important to, to know what God is calling us to, and he calls us to a lot of things. He calls us to follow him, to step out in faith, and part of that stepping out in faith 
is by showing the world who you are. By saying, I want to be baptized, I want to show the world Jesus. But it's even more than that. Because now the response at post-baptism, post-stepping out in faith, is now we want to tell the world. It's saying, I'm here to show you. Now I'm going to go and tell you. And what we're going to look at in the Gospel of Mark today is just that. You see, Jesus calls us not, not just to be complacent and to sit on the sidelines. He calls us to be disciple makers. And I fully believe the reason we have students going forward with baptism is because people have been leading out in their lives and showing them, leading them, pointing them to Jesus. And that's what we are called to do. We are called to be disciple makers. And, but I think sometimes when we, when we hear discipleship, when we hear be a disciple maker, it, it's almost like it's that four-letter word in Christianity, right? It's like, ooh, that carries a lot of weight to it. I don't know if I like that word, right? We hear that word and it's like, there's a lot there. I, I'm pretty sure that somewhere in the Bible it says, discipleship is reserved for super Christians, right? That's got to be somewhere in the Bible, right? Or perhaps you sit there and you're like, I'm not qualified, I didn't go to Bible college. I didn't go to seminary. I don't serve in a ministry that, that needs that. I don't, I don't, I'm not a pastor. That's their job. But here's the thing. I think that's a, a misunderstanding of God's word because here's the reality we are faced with is discipleship isn't an option. It's a calling for all believers. This is not something that we can hem and haw on. It's not something that we can look at and go, not for me. Discipleship is a calling for each and every one of us, that we are to be pouring into the lives of people around us to be pointing them to Jesus. In fact, if we go into Matthew, Matthew 28, at the latter portion of Jesus' ministry, after he has risen victoriously from the dead, he goes to his disciples, he goes, this is it. He goes, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus doesn't give us an option clause. There is no but statement here. He says, go and make disciples. Our calling as followers of Jesus is to actively step out in our faith and to go and meet people where they are at to bring them into a discipleship relationship with Jesus and to point them to a relationship with him and him alone. Our calling as believers is not to just sit passively, but to seek out people and walk with them and point them to the creator. That is what God calls us to. And this morning in Mark chapter 10, we're going to take a look at just that. We're going to look at a passage from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45, where Jesus invites the disciples into a relationship. And they just don't get it. But he keeps pursuing them, keeps pursuing them, he keeps pouring into them. And then in that moment, what we're going to see is Jesus is actually going to show us what discipleship is. He's going to very clearly go, this is discipleship. And then we're going to see these hallmark characteristics of what a disciple maker is. We will see Jesus actually walk through the, these different character traits that we should embody when we disciple people. And so for those of you here this morning who are like, I don't know if this is for me, I'm, I'm still kind of nervous, let's walk through this together. Let's see what Jesus does, how he leads out, and to say, how does this look in my life today? So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Mark 10. If you have to grab one off the pew, feel free to do that. If you have an app or a smartphone or a tablet with something on it, go ahead and do that. 
If somebody stole the Bible from the pew in front of you, it happens. It's going to be up here on the screen. I would just invite you to follow along. So Mark 10, verses 32 through 35, or 45 says this. So they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside, and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to die. They will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. They will kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came to him and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus replied, What do you want me to do for you? James and John said, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory goes on. It says, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or at my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love the disciples because it gives me hope in my life when I mess up. You know what I'm saying? Like Jesus, this is great. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. And this is important for us to understand uh, because Jesus is going to Jerusalem because he knows this is where it culminates. This is where I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to sacrifice and die on behalf of everybody in the world so they can know who I am and have eternal life, right? He knows that. The disciples, in their mind, they're going, ooh, he's going to Jerusalem. That's our capital. He's going to overthrow Rome. We're going to take charge. They, they have no idea what's going on. That's why they're excited and the crowd is nervous. They're like, sweet, 12 fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot. We're going to rule the nation. <laughs> all right, good luck, right? And so Jesus is like, all right, clearly you don't understand. Come here. And he brings them in and he has this conversation with them. He's like, all right, guys, here, here's what's going to happen. It's not what you think. We're going to go to Jerusalem. The religious leaders are going to try me, convict me. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. Um, they're going to mock me. They're going to beat me. They're going to spit on me. And then ultimately they're going to hang me on a cross. And I'm going to die. But then I'm going to rise victoriously. Three days later I'm going to rise up. And it's going to be like nothing you've ever seen before. And, this, and Jesus explains this to them. This is actually the third time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus does this. It's the most clear and direct that he's ever done. This is the time where he literally spells it out. He's like, this is the chain of events. This is exactly what they're going to do to me. And like he just bears his heart. He just he dumps everything out for these guys. And right after that, James and John, they walk up. And they're like, all right, Jesus, cool story, bro. But we want you to do whatever we ask. And you're going, were you sleeping? Like, what happened? This dude just told you, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to sacrifice myself. And your question is, uh, we want more. What more is there that they could want? 
But this is where we begin to see their misunderstanding. Jesus goes, all right, what do you want me to do? And they go, we want to sit at your, le- at your right hand and your left hand. Which in a kingdom was position of power and authority. And so in the disciples' mind, they completely missed what was happening. They missed what Jesus said. And they're still stuck on the fact that like, oh, he's going to take over and kick out Rome. We want the position of power. And Jesus is like, I don't think you understand what you're asking me. And they're like, no, no, we do. Give it to us. And he's like, really? You, you think you can take the baptism that I'm going to take? And you think you're going to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they're like, oh, yeah. And Jesus goes, okay, fine. Um, you will. You will be baptized the way I will be, and you will drink the cup that I am drinking. And what he's saying to them is like, look, because of your, what you're saying, you too will suffer for the kingdom of heaven. You too will walk this very hard path. And then he looks at me and he goes, but I can't give you the left or right. That's already been decided, and that's not for me to give to you. And then my favorite part of this passage is like the rest of the disciples, right? We're told they become indignant. I love that word. What it is is they're like, oh, man, they beat us to the punch, right? Like, I don't know. The way I see this happening is like I grew up in a family with uh, four boys, one girl. Um, dessert was a highlight in our house, okay? And like some of you, like, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, and my mom, God bless her, I don't know how she survived with us, right? She would take whatever it was, a pie or a cake, and she would always make sure to cut it as evenly as possible. But I'm convinced that little kids and teenagers are blessed with some type of superpower. And that superpower is to discern if a slice is a millimeter off, and you're going to get the biggest slice you can. I don't know how it happens. I'm convinced my mom used a ruler. And somehow we would always figure it out, and it'd always be like, I want the biggest slice. But then there was five of us, and you know, you get a pizza pie, you get a regular pie, it's eight slices, there's always three left, right? And so we're like, who's going to get the rest? And it was always a competition to figure out. Always, always a competition. And if you were smart, you could come up with a game plan on how to get mom or dad to give you another piece of dessert. If you were dumb, like I was, you told the other siblings, all right? And so, like, I remember this really clearly one time. My mom made lemon poppy seed cake, one of my favorite desserts in the world, right? And I was like, there's some left over. And I was like, I know how to butter mom up. I don't care if it's a lie. I'm going to tell her how much I love her. Um, It sounds horrible when I say that out loud, right? Um, Whew. Mom, don't listen. Uh, But it's like, I was like, I'm going to butter her up. I'm going to tell her how much I love her, how great she is, how, like, I'm so happy when she allows me to clean the house for her. Like, I'm just going to bless her. And I told my brothers this. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the cake. I was so dumb, so naive. As I'm saying this, my youngest brother, Josh, biggest sweet tooth in our family, goes, cool. Mom, you are awesome. I love you so much. I'm just so amazed at how you sacrifice for us. I just want to clean the house for you. Can I have another piece of cake? And I'm like, whoa, that was mine. And that's the disciples. They are not upset that James and John asked Jesus. They're upset that they beat them to the punch. They are upset that they didn't get there first to go give us the position of authority. And they start to complain and cry and get upset. And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, you guys, like knuckleheads. Come here, sit, sit, and listen. And he outlines again for him. He's like, look, you guys, you don't understand this. You still think it's about an earthly kingdom. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a kingdom that's so radically different. 
where everybody else says it's about what you get, about you being the, the chief honcho, it's about you leading others. In order for you to be great in my kingdom, you have to serve. You have to be least. And he goes, guess what? He goes, actually, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. What Jesus does right here is he's like, check this out. He goes, guys, you, you want to know what it means to be a part of my kingdom? Get on your knees and scrub the floor. You want to know what it means to be a part of my kingdom? Serve everybody, even the least of these. You want to know what it means to be a part of my kingdom? Humble yourself. And Jesus in that moment, for some of us, it's like, well, is, he, is, he, is Jesus proclaiming works-based righteousness? No, not at all. Because if we take it in the context of the chapter, what Jesus is actually saying is he's like, look, because of my sacrifice and atonement, because I'm coming to die in your place, you are free now to serve and love the many. See, this is so revolutionary, so countercultural to what we are conditioned to do. Jesus outlines for us, he's like, look, it's because of me that you do this. Not because you're trying to get yourself into heaven. Not because by some act of service you are now better than everybody else. You are doing this out of a result because you are so blown away by my sacrifice and what I've done for you. That is what we are to do. When we look at this passage, Jesus is calling us to live in a radically different life. To live radically different than anybody else. To be a testimony for who he is and what he has done. And because of that, he outlines for us what discipleship is. And I think as we look at this text, there's three steps to discipleship. And the first is the call. And the call is simple. It's follow me. And you see Jesus do this twice in this passage. He calls the disciples in the beginning when they're thinking, oh, we're going to take over Jerusalem. He's like, no, come here. Let me explain to you what's happening. And at the end of the passage where they're frustrated, he's like, okay, guys, come here. Let me explain again what is happening. When you engage in discipleship with somebody, you are inviting them into a journey, into a relationship that is pointing them to Jesus. It's all about he, not me. We are not calling them to follow me. We are calling them to follow he. So when we hear that call of follow me, we are walking with them and pointing them to Jesus. The first step in discipleship is to have them follow. You have to initiate and bring them in. The second one is the challenge. And the challenge is this to live radically different lives. You see, what Jesus does here is it's not just that he calls him. He's like, hey, guys, come and listen to me talk. He's like, no, I'm going to challenge you to be so revolutionary, so countercultural, nobody's going to know what to do with this. And so he brings him in. He's like, look, here's what you have to do. He goes, first of all, I'm going to go and die. You want to talk about living radically different? People don't sacrifice themselves like that. Jesus is like, let me lead out. Let me show you what this looks like. But then he goes even further. And he's like, look, in order for you to understand what this looks like, the challenge is now for you to live radically different as well. For you to go and to love and to serve the people who nobody loves and serves. For you to go and be the physical, the tangible, bodily image of who Jesus Christ is to the world. Go. Live radically different lives. And because of that challenge, because somebody has called us, to follow, because somebody said, this is what it looks like to follow him, now live differently. The response then is to serve like Jesus did. When we follow Jesus, when we understand what discipleship is, when we understand what God has done for us, when we see how he has just sacrificed himself and put himself in our place so that we can live in freedom and not bondage, our response is to serve just like he did. When we are overwhelmed by who Jesus Christ is, 
we cannot help but overflow and share that with others. You see, God doesn't call us to passivity. He calls us to action. And in this passage, when he works with the disciples, he, he radically alters their understanding of what it means to live in light of God's kingdom. You are not called to simply relish what you have. You are called to share and point others to it so that others may take joy in the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. But then I, I think it's still kind of like, well, that's good and all. I understand, like, it's kind of like you invite somebody in, you share life with them, you walk with them, you partner with them, you point them to Jesus, and then you, you encourage them to continue to serve and honor Jesus. I get that. I don't know how to do that. What does that actually look like? And this is where I think for some of us in the church, it's easy for us to, to get a little timid and to step back and say, no, that's reserved for the people who know how to do this already. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I don't think Jesus is giving us an option. I think he's telling us, no, you need to. And I think in this text, he actually outlines what a disciple maker looks like, what they do. So we get these hallmarks, if you would. And the first hallmark that we get from Jesus and his interaction with the disciples is a disciple maker is a teacher who leads by example. When we are discipling somebody, we lead by example. We teach them. We bring them alongside. We go, this is what you need to be doing. If you look at what Jesus did, he brought the disciples in. He said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to lead by example. He was a teacher who led out. He said, this is what's going to happen. I want you to know. So that way, when it happens, you can step up. But even more than that, they are a shepherd who encourages and guides. You see, it's one thing to be a teacher and to say, this is what you do. Do this, right? It's a whole other thing to walk alongside them as a shepherd and to go, come on, come with me. Let me show you how this looks. Walk with me. Pay attention. Let me guide you in this relationship. When you walk with somebody, when you bring them in, you are shepherding them and guiding them and shaping their heart. But it's even more than this, because it's not just these two things, because it's great that they're a teacher, it's great that they're a shepherd. You also need to allow your disciples to learn. It's amazing how the brain works, and I don't pr pretend to be a neurosurgeon or anything like that, but the way the brain works is, if you were to look at a child, if you were to bring one of our kid step kids up on stage and you were to be like, hey, what's two plus two? And before they can answer, you go, it's four. They haven't learned anything. What you've done is you've initiated a response. They will always know it's going to be four because that's what you told them it would be. There's been no type of learning that actually takes place. They haven't actually learned how to do addition. They haven't learned why two plus two equals four. And if you just do that, then there's no learning that takes place. A, a true disciple maker actually allows their people to learn. And when you look at the brain, the way that the brain works is that when you have to critically process and think and analyze, your, your brain begins to form more synapses and it begins to form more connections and your brain actually grows and your knowledge increases. And what we need to be doing in this moment is not just be handing out information. We need to be allowing them to learn. So when we say, you need to serve like Jesus did, instead of saying, go and clean up the vomit in the bathroom, we say, how does that look in your life? What does that look like? Go and do something with this. But in the same respects, I think this fourth one is the hardest, is that a disciple maker 
allows our disciples to fail. I think this is the hardest part about being a disciple maker. Because the reality that we are faced with is this, is that we are all fallen and broken and sinful people. And we will all fail one another in one way or more. There are going to be times that even we on staff here, as much as we we try to live like Jesus, that we are going to fail you. We are not perfect at all. And the reality is that in a a lot of ways, the, the best way for people to learn is through their failures. And this is hard because for you as parents, as the primary disciple makers in your children's lives, for you as grandparents who are discipling your grandchildren, this is hard. Because you never want them to fail. We are always putting out safety nets and attempting to keep them from failure. For you as employers, you never want your employees to fail because that reflects on you and your your position in your company. You as a student who has your friends in school, I don't know anybody who would wish failure in a class on their friends. We always want them to do better. We always want people to succeed, but the reality is in a disciple-making relationship, In a lot of ways, we have to learn by failure, just like the disciples did. Twice in this passage, they didn't get it. Twice they failed to comprehend what the Savior was telling them. But here's the thing. We don't just let them rest in their failure. We don't go, I'm finding a new one. I'm finding a new person to disciple. What we do as disciple makers is we step in to correct in love in order to foster growth. We step in in love to correct them, to foster growth. And this is what I mean by that. You never once in this passage see Jesus respond the way I would have, which would have been to smack James and John so hard the rest of the ten felt it. Okay? And some of you are parents, you're like, ha ha, yeah, he knows. Yeah, I got those. Okay? Um, But here's the thing, right? That's my humanistic response. And what Jesus models for us here is a relationship with people that is so radically different, it shapes our understanding of how this relationship should look. See, Jesus goes, come here. Let me tell you how you got it wrong. Let me explain to you what I really meant. Let's be better. And he walks with them even more until the very night he's betrayed. And then he rises victoriously and he comes back and continues to walk with them. And you see, that's what a true disciple maker does. They're not just a teacher and a shepherd who lead out and encourage. They don't just allow their disciples to learn and to fail, but they also come alongside of them and say, let me walk with you. Let me encourage you. Let me point you to Jesus. Let me offer correction, but let me do it in love. Let me love you as I show you Jesus, as he loves me and you. And the final hallmark of a disciple maker is this, is they're willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Very clearly, Jesus is willing to give his life as a ransom for many so that we can have a relationship with him. And I don't, I'm not up here to say, you know, Jesus is calling you to sacrifice your life for others. I don't think that's what he's necessarily saying because you're not Jesus. You can't do that. I do think that what he's saying is that when you engage in a disciple-making relationship, you will have to sacrifice time, energy, heartache, 
you're going to have to put aside self. As you do that in your job and you realize that you are called to serve, not be served, and as you care for people, perhaps that means that you don't always get promoted. As you sacrifice yourself, as you look to, to love and guide your family and to disciple your children, that even when it's late at night and you're tired from work, you know that's important to spend time with your kids to point them to Jesus. Perhaps it's that you know that, that in living like Jesus and caring about the least of these like he did, that in school that's going to open you up to ridicule. That people are going to look at you differently and laugh at you and call you a Jesus follower. Like that's some type of crime. There is sacrifice with this. But the reward is so great. Because you see the power of the gospel as it transforms lives. We are not called to, to just sit on the sidelines, folks. We are called to initiate, to love people, to point them to Jesus and to walk with them in a relationship like Christ walked with his disciples, like he walks with you and I each day. As I was thinking about this, as I was reflecting on what this looks like, I couldn't help but default to one of my favorite childhood movies growing up. And I think this clip perfectly represents what discipleship should look like in each of our lives. Take a moment and watch this. Zazu. Yes, sire? Take Nala home. I've got to teach my son a lesson. Come, Nala. Simba. Simba! Simba, I'm very disappointed in you. I know. You could have been killed. You deliberately disobeyed me. And what's worse, you put Nala in danger. I was just trying to be brave like you. I'm only brave when I have to be. Simba, being brave doesn't mean you go looking for <laughs> If you are not familiar with The Lion King, we, we need to have a conversation. Um, <laughs> And for those of you that were hoping I'd just like break out in song, it's not going to happen. There's a reason I don't, we want people to come to church, not flee. Um, and so it's interesting because if you know this story, right, Simba the cub, Mufasa the father, Simba before this scene took place was told by Mufasa, don't go to certain places. Specifically, don't go to the dark lands, don't go to the elephant graveyard because it's unsafe. He trains his son, he works with him, he teaches him, he guides him. And Simba does what every adolescent person does, is he decides he knew better, right? And he grabs a couple people, he grabs his friend Nala, and he grabs the king's emissary, Zazu, and they go down to the elephant graveyard. And it's there that a trap is sprung on them, that the hyenas come out with the intent to kill them. And in that moment, Mufasa swoops in to save the day. And then we enter in as they are walking away from that moment. 
And you know, just as you look at Simba, and it's amazing what animators can do with facial expressions of a lion, isn't it? That they can take a lion cub, and you know just by looking at him, he messed up. He's in trouble. And I love how Zazu just kind of comes over and he goes, good luck, right? Because he knows, dad's upset. He's like, not me this time, right? And in that moment, Simba is called to his dad. And I love the, the imagery that the creators had where they had Simba put his paw print in his father's. And he knows in that moment how badly he's messed up. Because he realizes that his dad set the path for him already. And he goes and he sits by his dad and Mufasa looks at him. He's like, Simba, I just can't believe you did that. And you see in his facial expressions just the hurt, the frustration, some of the anger. And then as he begins to talk to him, and, and Simba admits, like, I know I messed up, I know I messed up. It comes out that his dad was actually scared. He goes, because I love you, I was scared I was going to lose you. And he welcomes him into this circle. He paints the why. Simba, I told you not to go there because I love you because I wanted you to be safe. And what Mufasa does is he has laid out the learning. He has shepherded his son. He allowed for Simba to learn, to fail. And then he sacrificed himself to save his son. And he would do so again, right, later in the film. And then he brings him back and he's like, let me love you, correct you, and push you to be better. What we are called to do in a disciple-making relationship is to love people, to point them to Jesus, to walk with them, to let them learn, to let them fail, to bring them back in when they do, to point them to Jesus, and to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the gospel. This is a high calling. It isn't always easy. In a lot of ways, this is hard. But the reality is that we are called not to just go to the select few, but Jesus says, go out into the world and make disciples. Go and baptize them. And so it's not a question of who. We are told, go to everybody and make disciples. It's more a question of where. Where does this happen? I would argue that for most of us, it happens right in the context of our families. That it happens as you shepherd your children, as you look after your grandchildren, as you point them to follow Jesus, as you show them what a relationship with him looks like, as you take time during the day, and I know we're all busy, but even in those, those moments before bed, those moments around the table for dinner, in the car as you go to and from school, that you just are intentional with those moments and saying, what has God been teaching you? What are you most excited about today at school? What terrifies you about going to school today? How did you live like Jesus in school today? Who did you encourage? What can you do to be more like Jesus tomorrow? Who can we pray for? Just being intentional with those moments of bringing your children, your students alongside and saying, let me walk with you. And when they mess up, because we all do, when they say, I don't want to talk about it. You don't care. You don't understand. Dad, they didn't even have phones in your age. Because it happens, right? When that happens, we don't go, knucklehead. We go, you're right. We didn't have phones in my age. 
we had the telegraph. <laughs> right? That's how we texted. You thought you had us on that one, right? But when you go, explain to me why that's hard. What is it about the phone that has made your life today so difficult? And how can we work to improve that? It's when you walk with them that when they mess up, you don't, you don't criticize, we don't condemn. We walk with them and we push them to be more like Jesus, which means for a lot of us that we sacrifice our time and energy because we're coming home from work tired, because work doesn't necessarily have to be great for us each day either. And we have to be able to still love and care for our child and we have to live like Jesus and to push them to follow him. Perhaps it's at your job as you're the employer and it's about how you lead your employees. That, like Jesus said, it's about serving others. So instead of using your employees as a stepladder to gain power, you treat them as equals. And you love and encourage them and you show them who Jesus is. Perhaps as the employee then, it's not about talking about how horrible your boss is or talking about how somebody doesn't pull their weight. It's about stepping in and loving those people and seeing how you can show them Jesus and walk with them and perhaps even help them pull their weight and more. Perhaps it's at school. When you're walking through the hall and you see the kid who's always alone, always by themselves, and the world says, don't engage. And Jesus says, serve and love. And you go, you know what, I'm going to lay down my pride. I'm going to lay down what people think about me. I'm going to literally walk with this person to their next class. And I'm going to literally sit with this person at lunch and invite them over after school to love them and to show them who Jesus is. Perhaps it's at church when somebody walks in the door and you know when a new person walks into Hershey Free because they usually do this. You have how many lobbies? And there are different colors. Your children is, and then, and then, and I go, those are the people that you can step into a relationship with and say, hi, welcome to Hershey Free. How can I help you? My name is, do you have plans for lunch? Would you like to come to our house? I can't cook, but I'll, I'll order a pizza right? And you bring them in. You bring them in. You're like, this is what it is to follow Jesus, to show them who he is, to live it out. It can happen in your car, as you carpool to work, as you take your child to or from school, as you pick up the neighbor's kid who missed the bus again. You can engage with anybody in any area. My question to you then is where does this happen for you? Because this can happen wherever people are. So where does this happen for you? What are intentional areas that you can step into to make a concerted effort to disciple people, to point them to Jesus, to make sure they understand what it means to live with Jesus, to love like him and lead others in that aspect? Where can you do that on the daily? There are people in your lives who desperately need to know that Jesus loved them. And here's the crazy thing. Discipleship isn't only for Christians. Because I would argue that when Jesus called the 12, they had no understanding about who he was. And he shared life with them for three years. And I would argue until the resurrection and the ascension that they did not know who Jesus Christ was. And yet he poured into them on the daily to make sure they understand who he was. So discipleship can happen with people who know Jesus and those who don't. So where can this happen for you? Whose life can you step into to point them to Jesus and to walk with them? 
It is through moments like these that we see responses to the gospel like 29 students wanting to be baptized because people have stood in the gap, because they've shown them Jesus, they've walked through the hard and the suck with them, and now they are living it out. Where does this happen for you? Will you pray with me? Awesome Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you stepped in the gap for us, that even in the midst of us not comprehending what discipleship was, you chose to care for, to love, and disciple us as your people. Thank you for how you love us. Thank you for how you've called us to yourself. I pray, dear Lord, that you help us to live out discipleship in each moment of our days. Let us love and care for our families, for the people in our lives, our coworkers, our peers, our teachers, our neighbors, Father, whoever it may be, let us step into a discipleship relationship to point people to you and only you. May that be, may that be our mission in life. And we pray this in your name. Amen. This morning as we look to respond